For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippi, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today we welcome Norm Ornstein, author, contributing editor at The Atlantic, and scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been tracking the rise of extremism in America for years now. And as we are preparing for the 2022 facing down this authoritarian movement, I thought Norm's perspective would be really useful. I, I You know, Norm, I've gone back and I, I remember reading things that you were, you were writing in, uh, about Congress in, in the 80s. It was one of the things that got me sort of focused on politics. But late, lately, uh, there's a couple books that I think are really important. Uh, you, you've written several with Thomas Mann, but it's even worse than it looks, how the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism, which was like two, 2012, I think, was really way ahead of everybody else seeing where all this might go. And now uh, in your last book out in 2017, uh, One Nation After Trump, that you wrote with uh, Thomas Mann and E.J. Dionne, I think again, was so prescient about where we are again. It was a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and not yet deported. Norm, it's just great to have you with us. I wanna get your perspective on, on where you see things now. So, Joe, we're in a dark place. Um, I expected we would be in a dark place, but it's darker. You know, uh, John McCain uh, used to have as one of his uh, favorite sayings, it's always darkest just before it turns completely black. And we would laugh, but um, we're getting blacker. And the fundamental reason is, of course, we've known that these extreme forces were around. We knew going back more than a decade that the Republican Party had toyed with them, had tried to uh, exploit them, exploit their anger, incite their anger, and use it to gain power, but uh, really expected that they could then co-opt them. And they've been co-opted. And the fundamental reality now that makes this so particularly dangerous is that it is the core establishment of the Republican Party, the Republican leader in the House, to a slightly lesser degree, but still the Republican leader in the Senate, governors, the vast majority of the members, uh, other elected officials, the vast majority of top party officials, uh, including Ronna Romney McDaniel, the head of the Republican National Committee, are all in with extremist insurrectionist elements in the country. They are applauding laws in states that are not just uh, adding to voter suppression in a way that takes us back to the Jim Crow era, but they're applauding uh, states that are providing the ability for their Republican partisans to overturn the results of elections they don't like. What we're seeing in Congress right now is Kevin McCarthy is basically coddling 
the violent insurrectionists, his own members who were a party to this, Donald Trump trying to whitewash any investigation into what's been happening, including on January 6th, and trying to punish the few members like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who have said, we're strong conservatives, but we can't let our democracy disappear. This is a very different dynamic, I believe, than we have ever seen before. Even during the McCarthy era, for example, you still had a substantial number of major Republicans, including leaders, who uh, didn't just stand by. They were intimidated for a while, including Dwight Eisenhower, but then they stood up. And you had a Republican Party in the country, and this is another element of this, who didn't buy into wild conspiracy theories or all of the nonsense being uh, put out there by McCarthy and Roy Cohn and their allies. Now, I mean, we still have almost 70% of Republicans in the country who believe that Joe Biden didn't win the election. We have an increasing number of Republicans who are refusing to accept the reality that it was Donald Trump's supporters who conducted a violent insurrection that came way too close to actually killing members of Congress, maybe the vice president, and overturning the results of the election. We're in a dark place right now, and I don't think we uh, can possibly dilute its impact or danger to the country. And, in, you know, this seems to me to have been building since at least Newt Gingrich, when he, he took... Uh, you know, when he he came in with the and there, I know that you've been saying that the GOP has to reshape itself to survive. But how do, do you see that any possible? I mean, I know Cheney, uh, Kensinger there. I mean, there are pe- people who've been been trying to fight the, the authoritarian move that the party seems to be taking. But do you see any any leadership that say that, that would be capable in the face of the momentum that's already moving? Uh, as you say, it's just taken over everything. It's like a cancer that's just started a- eating the entire party. It actually is the party now. W- what do you make of, of how we come out? How, how does this, do we get change that course? Or does is there anyone who can? Uh, I don't see anything positive in the short run. Uh, one reason being that if I'm looking at the next generation of Republican leaders, meaning state legislators, Uh, uh, party officials, local party officials, they are all in the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, uh, Madison Cawthorn, Louis Gohmert, uh, uh, Jim Jordan camp. There are very few who are stepping up to the plate to say, I'm going to run for the House or Senate, say, because we need to return to a problem-solving, sane Republican Party. You know, Liz Cheney is going to have to fight for her political life uh, and for re-election in Wyoming. Adam Kinzinger, the same uh, in his congressional district. The one place where I would say we could look for possible hope, and it's not a likely one, is if the Republicans get battered in 2022, if they fall further back in the House, if they don't capture a majority in the Senate, indeed, if Democrats... And given the number of seats that are open, uh, at least a a theoretical possibility, even pick up a couple of seats. Then I think we see what, you know, many of us used to call the rule of three. 
You need to lose three elections in a row as a party to uh, begin to say, oh my God, there's something systemically wrong here and we've got to make changes. If you lose one, you can blame a candidate. If you lose two, you can say, ah, we just did it again. By the third time, you know that you've got a big problem. And of course, looking at it today, it's the Democrats who have an uphill battle to be able to retain a majority in the House uh, or to keep their 50-50 Senate even. Um, and as we see the next wave of COVID move forward, potentially endangering even some of the economic momentum, but also necessitating in many places what I think most Americans are not prepared psychologically or financially to do, which is to go back to another shutdown, uh, even going back to just mask mandates, uh, maybe not having schools be able to open because kids under 12 are unable to get vaccinated and can spread the deadly variant. And, you know, even more frightening, the fact that so many unvaccinated people moving towards these super spreader events um, with Sturgis coming up and after this Lollapalooza taking them around the country, maybe another variant that is more resistant to the vaccine. You know, uh, it's not likely that we're going to see a big Democratic victory. It doesn't mean that it's out of the question, but there are headwinds there. So, you know, I, I'm very fearful and we can't operate. And this is the bottom line. You know, if if we ended up with a Republican Party that just fell apart, that saw its base reduced in numbers, partly because a lot of them will be killed with, by COVID, but also just because of the demographic imperatives, we can't operate with a one-party system uh, that just doesn't work. We need two vibrant, problem-solving parties. The Republican one is going to be a very conservative one. If it's a, If we get back to a point that's more feasible, it'll be a Liz Cheney party, and that's very conservative. But right now, they're not conservative. They're radical and authoritarian. Well, you know, uh, getting back to three three times, uh, that's the what happened with Democrats. And as you know, Mondale, Dukakis, Ken, uh, Carter losing in, 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 in 80 uh, to Reagan. We lost three times before the party sort of recentered its itself and and started to be pragmatic enough to to change with Clinton winning in 92 but it took three pretty solid defeats for us to do that I, and I agree with you the biggest thing we that could sort of knock this down is a massive defeat in 2022 but the the headwinds are, are as you point out are just really difficult ones just historically and with the, the 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 power that they have now to change the rules in the legislature to suppress voters suppression at the same time uh, redraw a lot of the lines, uh, it's going to make it even if it's going to be tough to quote out organize um, your way out of sort of extreme reapportionment uh, re redrawing of congressional lines. Structurally, if we're in this place where Democrats really aren't in a position to fix this. I mean, we don't have we have 50 seats in that. Uh, uh, what do you think? Is there any way to, 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 you know, whether it's the filibuster or other things, where do you, is there anything that can get done here that you see is really important to changing, you know, the momentum right now? So, you know, there are some, I suppose we could call them green shoots uh, out there. You know, H.R. 1 and S. 1, the For the People Act, 
uh, was obsolete um, as soon as it was introduced this year. Of course, it had, it's a bill that had basically been structured in 2020. It was before uh, Trump uh, said the election was stolen. It was before January 6th. It was before we began to see all of these actions in states. What we're now seeing is a group of uh, Democratic senators, including Joe Manchin, uh, sitting down and trying to put together uh, a bill that can get 50 votes, and the For the People Act was not going to get 50 votes, but one that includes a lot of those core elements, plus the addition of some of these elements that Raphael Warnock has put together to try to counter some of these more pernicious efforts to overturn election results. I think there's a pretty good chance that they're going to come up with a bill that can get 50 votes. But of course, they're not going to come up with a bill that can get 60 votes. And there's still this huge challenge ahead of what you can do to change the rules in the Senate so you can get it done with just 50. And we're a ways away from that. And one of the things that does leave me nervous is that I think there's a pretty reasonable chance that we'll actually get something enacted a watered-down version, uh, but something significant. But it's not going to happen soon. It's going to take quite a while to play out. And one of the problems, of course, with the redistricting issue is that if you include in this bill, and that's still iffy, the uh, mandated independent redistricting commissions, it could face a court challenge, but it's not necessarily there. And by the time it gets enacted, it's probably too late for 2022. So we're going to have that uphill battle, and that may last uh, beyond this next cycle, and that's itself a big problem. I've been working hard on the filibuster issue for more than a decade. Al Franken and I had a proposal going back uh, a decade and more, uh, back to 2009, to flip the numbers on the filibuster, to go from 60 required to end debate, which puts all the burden on the majority, to 41 required to continue debate. And I'd like to combine that with the so-called talking filibuster where all 41 have to be on the floor and debating it in a germane fashion. You could go around the clock. You could go on uh, weekends. You could keep them in town on uh, Fridays. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, on Mondays, uh, they'd have to be there. And you could break them. And you'd get enormous public attention focused on the issue. And there'd be a real more than fighting chance that we could get something like this through. It's going to be harder to do what many of the Democrats in the Senate would prefer to do right now, which is just to carve out an exception for voting issues. It's reasonable to do that. There are plenty of precedents for it so that those can be done with just 50 votes. And if you had 50 willing to do that, we could get this bill done very, very quickly. But we're not there and it's going to take a while. And now, the other thing I would say, though, Joe, is the other thing that's so striking here. So you've got this tiny majority in the House. Basically, you can't lose almost literally a handful of your own members and expect to prevail with anything because the Republicans will vote in unison against you on anything that matters. You have that tie in the Senate. But we got the American Rescue Plan, almost $2 trillion, including some sweeping changes in social policy. The tax credit for children has done more to alleviate child poverty than anything else in the history of the country. Now we have the possibility, at least, 
of these two major infrastructure bills, including human infrastructure, with child care, with climate change uh, provisions that are beyond anything that we've done before, to extend that child tax credit. If all of those things happen, I would say we're in FDR territory in terms of the impact on the social fabric of the country. And uh, Joe Biden uh, does not have the swollen majorities that FDR had, much less that Lyndon Johnson had with the Great Society. Now, that may be it, and we may then move to losing our democracy, but um, you know th- that they've been able to get this far is still itself quite positive and striking. Give a lot of credit to Nancy Pelosi and even Chuck Schumer. No, I, look, I think given the situation, the polarization, the just uh, the true authoritarianism of this movement on the other side, it's amazing what, what what's been what's happened, what they've been able to get done. The 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 bigger problem with that though is I think I, I think Biden was exactly turns out to be exactly the right president for this moment, but they. they there's a limit to what's doable, and they're still fighting a zero-sum game. I mean, it's the autocracy wins, democracy loses, even if some of these things you talk about get accomplished. What what, are, what about the January 6th commission? I mean, um, do you think that can wake anybody up, or you just think no one? But one of the things I've uh, been talking about is that if I could wave a wand and Jenny Thompson called the next witness, um, it would be uh, Mitt Romney, because I think he'd be a perfect bridge from those officers' testimony to then have him be, you know, that officer that turned, uh, Goodman, who turned him around uh, as he was going towards the mob and turned him around and, and kept him out of harm's way. And I don't think Romney would require, I'd like to think, I'd hope that Romney wouldn't require a subpoena, uh, which would at least then open up as as they did subpoena other Republicans who refused to come. They just keep sort of pushing the the nonpartisan or bipartisan attempt to get to the truth. But I don't know, what do you, do you have any thoughts about whether January 6th can, can get us somewhere? This, the the uh, select committee, I mean. I had hoped that we would have uh, the commission passed, but even that yeah. was very, very limited, particularly because um, Democrats to get bipartisan support in the House, you know, made a lot of concessions to Republicans. The Republicans, if they'd created this commission, first of all, would have been appointed by McCarthy and McConnell, and uh, we would not have gotten uh, a sterling group, but they also would have had the ability to block subpoenas. Now, I think the reason that, there are two reasons why Mitch McConnell uh, filibustered to death a commission that gave them everything they wanted. Um, one is, as a general matter, they don't want any focus on January 6th. In fact, Republicans, including their leaders, keep perpetrating another big lie that this was no big deal. It was just like tourists coming to Washington. And uh, we don't care to follow up. You know, there are going to be prosecutions of these miscreants who did it, which doesn't get to uh, Trump inciting it the role of uh, Josh Hawley uh, and Ted Cruz, of Mo Brooks and Paul Gosar, of Marjorie Taylor Greene and others in helping to create this. And uh, it doesn't uh, include uh, the role of a uh, Jim Jordan who talked to Trump on January 6th 
and then five days later was given a Medal of Freedom. And along the way, we know that Trump tried to get the Justice Department to say that the election had been uh, corrupt and said he had members of Congress behind him, and Jordan was a name that came up. There's all of that. And the problem with a congressional committee is they can issue subpoenas. Those subpoenas, as a general matter, have been shown to be very weak. Congress has been unable to use its inherent contempt authority to hold uh, people who refuse their subpoenas in contempt and uh, throw them into a jail cell in the uh, basement of the Capitol. But another part of this is you subpoena your own members and they refuse, and what do you do? You're not likely to arrest your own members of Congress, although you could. But, you know, one of the avenues there would be the ethics process. What they're doing by refusing subpoenas, by refusing to testify in something that was a direct threat to their own lives and to the, our democracy, deserves expulsion or at minimum censure. You're not going to find a Republican on the Ethics Committee willing to do that even for the worst miscreants in this process. So my preferred, preferred way of doing this had been to have the attorney general appoint uh, a, a, a special counsel to do the investigation because Justice Department subpoenas are far more powerful. I'm hoping that this select committee will be able to use um, the Justice Department subpoena authority, may be able to hold people um, to uh, the possibility of perjury charges and may be able to get to the bottom of some of this, including with witnesses from the White House. And I'm a little hopeful, but, you know, I'll get back to circling back. The second reason that McConnell didn't want to have this process go forward in any fashion is that if you get a public focus and you get these hearings and you show this video and you bring in these credible police officers and then you move to bringing in people who can tell you what conversations Donald Trump had. And, you know, Philip Rucker, who's the co-author um, with Carol Leonig of this new book on these days in the White House, made a very important point uh, on television a, a week or so ago that among the people who could talk are the waiters and the support staff in the White House, many of whom are in the room while the president yeah. is on the phone. Others in the White House staff who saw what he was writing in his emails, who may have in their own um, uh, devices emails sent by the president. That could be particularly significant here. We're getting more and more direct evidence that Donald Trump very directly with forethought incited this insurrection, believed that it was his avenue to overturning the results of the election. And the next question is whether we as a country, including the attorney general, uh, including other prosecutors, have the fortitude to then make sure that the whole adage that we have equal justice under law, that no man, no person is above the law, take actions that are necessary if we have people, including a former president, who tried to overthrow the elected government of the United States. And, the, you know, the, the other thing, though, is it's not stopped. I mean, I, I saw a report today that uh, they're calling for a MAGA rally at the Capitol, U.S. Capitol, on September 18th, uh, another one. I mean, it's, I mean, and, and again, this is at the same time the, the former president here is, is saying that he'll be reinstated, uh, you know, 
earlier than people think and those kinds of things. So it seems to me that 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 he he's not going away. I know a lot of people um, thought, well, you know, he's not going to be he's not president. It'll all disappear. It'll start moving away. It's not. It's getting stronger in a lot of ways. I I, I think, and he's still being enabled by McCarthy and these uh, and these guys. When you look at into your crystal ball a little, um, he's likely to be active trying to get his folks, his Trumpist uh, nominated in the Senate races and House races. Do you think there's any chance that, that you know, the Stark, as he's, and we've seen a little bit of this, as they try to out-Trump each other to win a nomination, they make themselves you know, vulnerable. There are Republicans who will vote, who cross the line and vote for a Democrat. Do you see him having that kind of an impact or do you think it's just he'll be able to just keep fueling this fire and have a, uh, his his uh, followers come out, you know, energized in big numbers in 2022? So, you know, there are a few things that are motivating uh, these politicians, Republican politicians. One, certainly for many of them, they really believe this stuff. Um, they, yes. you know, believe what they see, what they hear. I think uh, you could put Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Louis Gohmert in that category and a whole lot of others, Ron Johnson. Um, there are a lot of others that are motivated by fear. And it's a fear of Trump and the retribution that comes if he attacks you. It's a fear of his followers um, and the fact that uh, probably 70% of Republicans are tied into this cult right now. But if the uh, results in this primary in Texas prove uh, to be not just a one-shot deal, where his preferred candidate loses in a primary, you get two or three more of those. And uh, you know we may see slight increases in the backbone intensity of some Republicans out there, a belief that he is not all powerful and infallible, maybe to a small degree at least. The other thing that I hope will happen is that as we see more and more evidence that discredits him in the eyes of at least the college-educated suburban white Republican voters, who are the key to Democrats' uh, successes in 2018, that the groundwork is laid for these uh, prosecutions moving forward in New York State and that may move forward federally against some of his family members for what was clearly total corruption in the inaugural monies, his son, Don Jr., and uh, uh, daughter, Ivanka, other son, Eric, and others. Trump could be bankrupted. His company could be forced uh, out of business. Trump could face charges himself uh, in, in the state of New York. And at minimum, that would be an enormous distraction that would take him uh, away and off the table. But he's getting more and more grandiose in his egomania. And uh, he's going to do whatever he can to blow up the fundamental processes in the country and create uh, some kind of violence uh, out there. And we can't ignore that reality or the reality that the incitement to violence, people who believe what he has been telling them, that, uh, you know, there was uh, a corrupt election and a takeover by illegitimate people. And what do you do under those circumstances? You know, we have to be afraid of what could happen with all of this. 
And uh, Donald Trump is right at the forefront of this potential disaster beyond the disasters that we've seen. Yeah, I often talk about, you know, people creating a, a thought process where you imagine if Barack Obama uh, in November of 2016 had walked out, the president of the United States had walked out and said the election was stolen, uh, Hillary Clinton is the president, and, and, you know, really pounded the table on it and then kept saying it. How many Democrats? I mean, the, the people, they've been lied to, um, and a lot of them want to believe the lie. I understand that. But a lot of these people were lied to by their president and believe him and uh, are going to, uh, 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 and, uh, you know, the, the Democrats did not nominate somebody who would do this. But Obama never would do it. And I think, I'd like to think that if he did, enough of us would have said bullshit. But th that's not what's happened on the on the other, uh, on the Republican side at all. The real thing here though is, cause I agree with you, there have to be two functioning parties. It doesn't, it, you know, the, 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 it, we, we need that in, in the country. And so how do you see the, Repu like my friends in the Lincoln Project, which I'm working with, um, think that the Republican party needs to be, you know, uh, uh, just smoldering you know, in, in the ground. Uh, and a new party, you know, eventually the, the, the other functioning party will be something else uh, uh, created after that. Um, does Trump demolish the party, too? Or do you see the do you see elements of this party continuing as the Republican Party? Or do you think it will be some and in terms of historically with Whigs, et cetera? I mean, you've seen how how a, a party dies and a new one emerges. Or is it this one evolves? into a, your vision of of the Cheney party, for lack of a better way of putting it? Well, right now, the Cheney party would have, uh, could to, caucus to, in, his, in her bathtub, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, you know, we do have history here. We did have uh, a Whig party uh, that was uh, supplanted uh, by the modern Republican party, Abraham Lincoln playing a significant role there. We had along the way a know-nothing party that actually elected a president before it disappeared, um, you know, with a lot of similarities uh, in some ways to the Trumpist uh, nativist uh, party that we see now. So it's conceivable. If I had to guess, uh, if we want to put the, the, uh, a positive light on this, that we don't go just completely to an authoritarian state for an extended period of time, or, you know, uh, the equivalent of uh, Orban's uh, Hungary. And I noticed uh, today that uh, Viktor Orban was meeting with, I'm sure, one of his uh, uh, real allies uh, and admirers, uh, Tucker Carlson, which tells you something as well. What I would say could happen is that over time, because of uh, the uh, demographic realities, because of the fact that younger generations moving forward are very different in terms of social policy and attitudes towards government than their predecessors. Because we're likely to see a dwindling uh, number of people who fit categories of white working class and evangelical Christians, that the Republican Party will be a shell. It will not be able to capture not just majority support, but anything close to it. But along the way, we're going to have a larger number of people who do not find themselves comfortable as Democrats. 
for whatever set of reasons, foreign policy, uh, you know, uneasiness with uh, the demographic mix of the Democratic Party, um, race will still be a factor, economic policy and uh, attitudes towards government. And out of that, we may see a lot of people move to create a different party that might be able to elect significant numbers of people to Congress, and that ultimately we'll see that shell of a Republican Party atrophy further and people begin to move to um, this new element, whatever they want to call it, uh, the new Whigs or whatever it might be. And we'll end up with a two-party system again. It just won't be something like this current Republican Party. But we're a long ways away from that. And what we have to keep yeah. in mind is that it's not just Trump. It's, and it's not just social media. It's not just the fact that a very uncomfortable proportion of Republicans are all in on the QAnon conspiracy theories. It's that Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch and their allies and the talk radio forces have created an alternative universe that the vast majority of Republicans in the country have bought into. And it's going to take a lot more to get a significant number of them to finally say, oh my God, how could I have believed that? I didn't realize that I was a member of the equivalent of a fanatic uh, religious cult. So, you know, we're not seeing anything like this unfold over the next two or three or four years. Yeah, no, the, it looks like for several election cycles, if we can survive that long, um, and I have, I have real fears about that. That's why I, I focus so much on we've got to uh, stop these people from becoming the majority. I mean, uh, uh, that, that's the rule one. I don't know, Alex, do you have anything? Yeah, Norm, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the things I, I saw you wrote. You talked extensively about how when we got to points like this in the country before, you could always count on a few people on the other side, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, of good faith to kind of put the country first. Um, I think you talked a lot about uh, being involved in the, the McGovern-Dole fights over Vietnam. Um, clearly, we've got like three of those left in the Republican Party left. Is there any blueprint for that kind of courage or, or those kind of people to, to kind of pull people back from the brink or are we too you know, far This gone? is where I believe that um, a loss in 2022 would uh, bring some of those people out of the woodwork again. You know, if I, I've, I've worked over decades with a lot of the Republicans in the Senate now, fewer in the House, um, although I've worked with a few of them in the House as well. There are people who in a different uh, dynamic, in a different universe, would be more open to not necessarily working with Democrats. You know, the problem that exists in this era of the permanent campaign and with the great differences between the parties is that it, it, there's still a great reluctance to do any number of things that might be good for the country, but that would damage your own party's prospects the next time around. But who at least have that institutional loyalty and uh, loyalty to the fundamentals of our system who would stand up and say enough is enough, but they're not there now. And they're not going to be there until there's a little more traction for standing up. And the traction is, 
look what you idiots did. You got us into a hole and the hole keeps getting deeper and deeper. And until that happens, until they lose another election in a big way, because this approach has failed, I just don't see them emerging. I mean, you know, you see it to some degree with a couple of these governors who are at least trying to lay the groundwork for taking back their uh, party. Hogan in Maryland and uh, Baker in Massachusetts. Um, But they're outliers and they're not ones with the kind of capacity uh, of credibility to turn some other elements of their party around. Uh, You know, if Kevin McCarthy had been anything other than the worst House leader in the history of the country, he would have stepped up to take uh, action against Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Paul Gosar and some of the others, and he would have protected and defended Liz Cheney. And that would have been a different dynamic. But, you know, Cheney and Kinsinger are out there all alone. They've been isolated from the rest of the party and discredited in a lot of ways. All credit to them for continuing to stand up for what they believe. But they don't have that even underlying small level of support to encourage others to come out of the woodwork. Well, Norm, you wrote with Thomas Mann, it's even worse than it looks. And it's... I don't know how many years left. That was 2012. So almost a decade later, it's even worse than it looked then. I really want to urge people. I just think, uh, one, Norm's a hero of mine. Uh, I've really followed him for quite a while, uh, and he's been very prescient. And I really think uh, we could all learn a lot if you uh, we're going to have a link to his last uh, One Nation After Trump in the show notes. Uh, I urge everybody to follow him on Twitter at Norm Ornstein. And again, we'll put uh, we'll put the the books in the show notes and his uh, Twitter handle. Norm, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It, it, I, I I wish it was. Uh, I, I think the most hopeful thing you left us with is that um, that you do see a new party emerging at some point if we can if we can make it there. Uh, and it's up to all of us all of us uh, uh, in our own way to join a pro-democracy coalition um, to stop this authoritarian movement in the, uh, in the Republican Party uh, so that we can get to that day. Thanks for being with us, North. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast.